Welcome to the War Daddy Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the dark heart of history and warfare. Holy shit, you're back. Well, goddammit, I'm honored. And uh, I am your host, Will Kresh, and I really appreciate you jumping back on board with me. Uh, Please allow me to start off by addressing a couple little lies that made their way into the back end of the last episode. I may have mentioned that this third chapter would be the grand finale for this glorious way to die season, but to do it justice, well, it would be wrong to rush it. So please stick with me. We're going to go just a little bit deeper. And if you are in fact digging this topic, rest assured there's plenty of good stuff on the horizon. Last time, we ended with the greatest battleship ever built, the Imperial Japanese flagship Yamato, about to weigh anchor on her grand suicide mission, along with a veritable swarm of kamikaze pilots, all engaged in the final, most terrible bonsai charge. Now, I feel like we just need to take a moment to appreciate the scale of this. We're talking about thousands of soldiers and sailors and pilots, all willfully engaging in a mission that, by design, In order for this mission to be accomplished, they are meant to die. This would be the spark that would ignite the new divine wind, a grand act of sacrifice that would elicit help from the spirits of their mighty ancestors and the sympathetic gods above. Now, to get to this scale, this rarefied atmosphere of commitment on a national, not just limited to a military level, well, it takes generations to get there. What we are witnessing is the most extreme culmination of a death-centric, fanatically loyal heritage and identity that permeates Japanese culture, hearkening all the way back to ancient times. As I have fawned over many times in this podcast, nobody does death like the Japanese. Now, I've been criticized by many people who have heard me pontificate about this, and I must confess that their criticisms do ring true at times, but please don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating any type of suicide, ritual or otherwise. I do not condone it or celebrate or attempt to glorify it. I don't even think it was a particularly effective warfighting strategy, as we'll discuss thoroughly in the coming episodes. But what I cannot deny is that I am just in awe of what it takes to carry it out. The actual act. How do you get to that place? What it is to be a kamikaze just breaks my mind. It's a gigantic concept that rears its ugly head all throughout history over and over again. Could I be capable of this? Maybe not this version of me, but I am just a human. Just another malleable great ape waiting to be told the right story, handed a spear, and pointed toward the enemy. Aren't we all? We can all be made to kill, but to go against the omnipotent instinct of self-preservation, not to, say, you know, save your child but for some high-minded concept like honor. What kind of human behavior is that? Bravery? Insanity? How do you make a kamikaze? Not that you'd be listening to this with your kids, but now is probably a good time to tell them to go watch, uh, I don't know, Return of the Jedi or Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. It's story time. Let's take it back to the turn of the 16th century in the western province of Honshu. Japan is an island ruled by shoguns and daimo. 
In an effort to foment peace between perennially warring factions, Lord Kuranosuke Asano is chosen by the Shogun to receive envoys of the Imperial family. Being an extremely important and sensitive duty in a culture obsessed with ceremony and so highly attuned to the slightest disrespect, Asano first had to be schooled in the arts of court etiquette. Charged with his tutelage was the highest-ranking master of protocol, Kira Kozenkosuke Yoshinaka, who, by all accounts, was a legendarily vicious prick. Not only was Kira a cruel and vindictive master, he also expected compensation from Asano. Believing it was purely Kira's duty to train him, Asano refused to pay the exorbitant bribes, thus making Kira a very dangerous enemy. Kira's behavior quickly turned downright malicious, taking every opportunity to humiliate and embarrass Asano. As the offenses and slights of honor mounted, their mutual hatred festered, but insulting a samurai, no matter how high your status, is never wise, especially one with a temper. It would be in Edo Castle that this simmering hatred finally boiled over. With Kira doing his absolute best to goad him, Asano finally snaps. In a flash of rage and steel, Asano lets loose with his katana, aiming to sever Kira's insolent head from his arrogant body, but he is thwarted by the Imperial Guards. As blood drips from Kira's slashed brow, now puddling on their master's floor, Kira knows his aim has been met. At his shrill, craven cry, Asano is seized. To draw one's blade within the Shogun's residence was strictly forbidden. To attempt murder within the very walls of Edo Castle? That was unthinkable. Making no attempt to flee, when questioned, Asano claimed that his only regret was his failure to kill Kira. For his crime, Asano's family would be ruined, his brother imprisoned, his fiefdom confiscated, his samurai made masterless, and he himself was to commit seppuku immediately. Seppuku. Seppuku is one of the great, purely Japanese inventions. The ultimate form of atonement, seppuku is the act of self-capital punishment by slitting open your own stomach with a dagger. This was done with great formality and ceremony, and usually with many witnesses. One can picture Kira watching the ordeal, his lips curling in a venomous snarl of satisfaction as Asano plunges his own dagger into his own flesh. When word of Asano's fate reached his fiercely loyal samurai, to a man they unsheathed their blades, refusing to let their master's death go unavenged. But their leader, Oishi, snaps them out of their reactionary fury. He knew that Kira would expect such a reprisal, and that an attack now would be futile. Instead, they would band together and swear a sacred oath to avenge their lord when the time was right. No matter that revenge in this case was strictly forbidden under pain of death by the Shogun. To succeed in killing Kira, they would need to play the long con. They would embrace the new role forced upon them. They were now Ronin. These disgraced, masterless samurai dispersed, becoming monks or woodworkers or tramps, anything to lull Kira and his retainers into a false sense of security. However, Kira was not fooled so easily. 
He had the ronin followed by spies, their families watched, waiting for any sign that a plot might be afoot, especially Oishi, whose devotion to his former master was well known. Oishi transformed himself into a repulsive drunken scoundrel, squandering all of his money on geishas, whores, gambling, and booze. He publicly disgraced himself night after night after night, destroying his status and reputation as a samurai. He even went so far as to divorce his beloved wife, knowing full well her association with him would put her in grave danger once their trap was finally sprung. Meanwhile, as the other ronins slipped into anonymity, they stealthily went to work making careful plans and preparations. Posing as workmen and bricklayers, they gained access to Kira's castle. One ronin even went so far as to marry the daughter of the architect of his castle in order to obtain the design plans. In the highest secrecy, they made their own armor and weapons so as not to raise the slightest suspicion. At the peak of his shame and debauchery, Oishi was found passed out in the muddy street, being kicked and spat on by children. A fellow samurai, infuriated by his lack of courage to avenge his master, attempted to drag him to his feet, but Oishi fell limp. Disgusted, the samurai kicked him in the face, sending him splashing back into the mud. To even touch a samurai's face was the pinnacle of disrespect. Coward! Disgrace! they screamed. All who knew him cursed his name. But Oishi allowed the abuse to rain down upon him. Oishi's fall from grace was solidified. Convinced that he could no longer be in any danger from such lowly scum as Oishi and his ronin, Kira's guard was finally down. After three long years of humiliation and secret preparation, the 47 ronin were finally recalled by Oishi to reaffirm their sacred oath to their fallen master. The time for revenge was at hand. Under the cover of a driving blizzard, the 47 ronin spring their trap slipping through the town aided by friendly villagers who support the revenge against the hated Kira. Vaulting over the castle walls with stashed ladders, slitting the throats of unsuspecting guards. The whistle of a well-aimed arrow silences the lookout in the watchtower, but with his dying breath he manages to ring the warning gong. But it's too late. The Ronin are inside. With a shrill war cry from Oishi, the fight is on. The ronin explode through the now unlocked front gate, meeting Kira's samurai with a clash of steel. Spraying crimson stings the virgin white snow as the ronin slash and hack their way through the defenders. Screams Oishi as he tears his way through enemies in a room-by-room search for his quarry. Spattered with the blood of slain samurai, Oishi storms into Kira's bedchamber, finding a huddled mass of terrified women, but still no Kira. One ronin checks the bed, It's still warm. He can't be far. Oishi turns to the women and growls. You know who we are here for. He grabs one of the courtesans by the scalp and drags her to the center of the room amid the shrieks of terrified women. With fury gleaming in his eyes, he presses his shining blade to her neck and asks again, Where is your master? Still no answer. He then raises his katana to strike off the courtesan's head, but is stopped by the protest of one of her sisters. She points. A false wall. Blades cleave through the bamboo, revealing an antechamber. 
As they enter, a blade flashes through the gloom, but Oishi deflects it, disarming the attacker. After swiftly landed punches and the crunch of snapped bone, a man in sleeping robes is ripped out and ragdolled to the floor. Oishi clutches him by the throat. The man hisses in anger, spitting blood into Oishi's eyes. Oishi wrenches back his head, now finding a long scar running across his captive's brow. The scar given to him by his master Asano on the day he tried to kill him. Kira. Oishi drags Kira down the long hall through puddles of his retainer's blood, finally dumping him in the snow-covered courtyard where the ronin wait. Rough hands rip open his robes, exposing his white belly. Kira's terrified eyes dart around, first seeing his dead samurai littered around him, then seeing the stoic eyes of the men whose master he had sentenced to death. Oishi puts a dagger into Kira's trembling hand, the very dagger that Asano had used to kill himself with, and says, Die now as a true samurai should, and I myself will spare you any indignity. With that, Oishi unsheaths his katana and gets into position to land the killing blow. Kira trembles in the deafening silence. All eyes watch, waiting for him to do the honorable thing to plunge the blade into his guts as their master had done, to commit seppuku and die with honor. But Kira's voice cracks into a pitiful whimper. The dagger slips from his grasp. Oishi picks up the dagger and puts it back into his hand. But Kira is now petrified, sobbing. Again, the dagger falls to the snow. Disgust washes over Oishi's face. He solemnly says, so you shall die a coward. With that, two ronin grab Kira's arms, and with his master's dagger, Oishi saws through Kira's throat amid his pitiful blood-gurgling gasps, the blade finally severing Kira's insolent head from his arrogant body. That same night, after marching miles through the driving snow, the wounded, gore-soaked ronin finally arrive at Lord Asano's shrine. Torchlight casts looming shadows of these most loyal samurai as Oishi places Kira's severed head upon their master's grave. With that, the 47 ronin kneel in prayer. But this is not where the story ends. As I have said, nobody does death like the Japanese. The tale of these ronin had spread quickly, and they were hailed as heroes. They had rightfully avenged their master's cruel death, as was the duty of any true samurai. But in doing so, they had defied the shogun, who had expressly forbidden revenge in this instance. In light of this, the shogun came to what was seen as a fair ruling. The ronin were sentenced to death, but rather than being executed as criminals they would be permitted to honorably commit seppuku and die as warriors. In the end, each man, including the youngest who was just 16 years old, ended their own lives by committing seppuku, this ultimate gesture of loyalty. In the coming years, the legend of the 47 ronin was held up as the purest example of samurai behavior. 
They were deified. A shrine and temple was erected at their graves. People flocked to pay respect and offer prayers, and the samurai who kicked and cursed Oishi as he lie drunk in the street, he later came to beg for forgiveness, and as penance for his great disrespect, he himself committed seppuku at Oishi's grave. And for this act, he too was honorably buried along with the 47 ronin, thus continuing the seemingly unending loop of death to avenge honor, followed by more death to preserve honor, followed by more death, and so on and so on. To this very day, you can go to Senkakuji, where the temple and shrine still stands. You'll see preserved the homemade armor that the ronin wore on that fateful day of their attack, they even have the original receipt given to the abbot when Kira's relations later came to claim his head. This story fits right along with The Divine Wind and Kunsunoki's Seven Lives for the Emperor. It's part of the classical canon of Japanese real-life legends that make this people who they are. Known as the Chunsigura, this tale became vastly popular, almost immediately becoming a kabuki play and part of the oral storytelling tradition and it remained a popular staple in celebrating samurai heritage. In fact, a film version was commissioned by the state and released on December 1st, 1941, just days before the Pearl Harbor attack. And it's still alive and well today. Known as the 47 Ronin, you've no doubt heard about this story in one form or another. Even just a few years ago, there was a huge CGI blockbuster version starring the great and powerful Keanu Reeves, which was admittedly pretty awful, but I'll be goddamned if I'm going to badmouth Johnny Utah on this podcast. Keanu, if you're by any chance listening, please give me a buzz. Consider this an open invite to join me on the War Daddy podcast. We can talk about dodging bullets or what Sandra Bullock smells like. I don't know, anything you want. Anyway... The main feature that sets this story apart from other tales of honor and chivalry and loyalty throughout history and across other cultures is what manifests at the crux of this tale, and that is seppuku. Also known as harikiri, which translates to belly-cutting, this act was seen as a deed of ultimate bravery, an admirable exit for a samurai who is defeated, disgraced, or mortally wounded. In essence, it meant that one always had the power to wipe clean one's transgressions, if he had the strength. In many cases, this act would even enhance your reputation. Born on the battlefield in the 10th century, the first acts of seppuku were performed by defeated warriors who refused to fall into enemy hands, thus avoiding a humiliating fate that usually involved at least a little bit of torture. With their tanto or wakazashi, either of the shorter blades in a samurai's arsenal, one would assume a kneeling or cross-legged seated position. Then, open your kimono and with the tip of your blade, find the spot just below the rib cage, directly left and slightly above the navel. Then, take a deep breath and plunge that blade as deep as possible. But you're not done yet. Once inserted, you must slowly drag it horizontally across your body, slicing all the way to the other side, thus opening a neat exit for your soul to easily escape your body. If plunged deep enough, one could sever the descending aorta, causing massive hemorrhaging and an excruciating but relatively swift death. If alone, and death was not coming along quite swift enough, and you still had the strength, a samurai could then plunge that blade into their own throat to ensure finality. 
This gory battlefield practice soon evolved into a highly ritualized spectacle. It expanded to include ceremonial bathing, the writing of a death poem, a last meal, one final cup of sake. In a pure white robe, one would kneel, typically in front of an audience, perhaps inside of your family and your surviving samurai, as well as the warriors who defeated you. The more numerous and higher in position the witnesses, the more honor a samurai would take with him to the next realm. If permitted, as capital punishment, you typically had before the sun set on the day you were sentenced to complete the act. And this was seen as a generous gift. Rather than being executed as a lowly criminal, it gave one the chance to prove one's loyalty and retain honor. This was an especially good deal in contrast to the other favorite medieval Japanese execution methods on the menu, such as kamaude, or death by boiling, which was reserved for common offenders. This self-capital punishment was quite a scene, usually performed in front of the offended parties, court officials, and possibly even the shogun who ordered it. It was not until the 17th century that a kaishakunin was employed. This was a most trusted second, perhaps your brother or your best samurai. He would stand at your side, and as you completed the opening of your stomach, the kaishakunin would strike the killing blow, severing your spinal cord with his katana but he would be careful not to completely cut off the head, thus achieving the symbolic pose of daikakubi, literally the pose of embraced head. Try to picture a most fucked up human Pez dispenser, but from the back. So, with seppuku, your head was truly left in your own hands. In battle, an enemy who highly respected you could volunteer to take the role of kaishakunin in order to salute your bravery. This was an extremely important role, he had to be a highly skilled swordsman to perfectly execute the cut and not send the head flying off crazily, spraying blood and scaring the watching dignitaries, like that scene in Kill Bill. It was even important for the doomed samurai to trap their sleeves under their knees so as not to fall backwards, thus landing in an undignified pose in death. Even if the kaishikunin executed the maneuver perfectly, he gained no acclaim. But if he botched it, he risked bringing a lifetime of shame not only to himself but to the one performing seppuku. The wives of samurai even had their own version of seppuku called Junshi, which translates to suicide through fidelity. With their husbands fallen in battle, invading forces stormed many a castle only to find the wife of the shogun or daimo silently kneeling, facing the setting sun, having slit her own throat. In doing this, they avoided capture and followed their husbands into a dignified death. It was especially important for the lady of the house to tie their legs together to ensure a decent final posture despite the convulsions of death. This mortal exit was chosen by many of the wives of the 47 ronin, but it was not in any way limited to just wives. In some cases, vassals and samurai would follow their master in death if they had performed seppuku or been slain in battle. This voluntary junshi seppuku was even seen in cases where lords had expressly forbidden it. The first time any Westerner witnessed the act was in 1868. A French admiral's soldiers were killed unlawfully by samurai and were in turn sentenced to death. As is custom, the French admiral and his officers were on hand to witness the formalized ceremony, but... When the first samurai committed this highly ritualized self-capital punishment, 
they were absolutely horrified. The French admiral was so shocked and disturbed, he started begging the other samurai to be spared. But the shogun's word was final. With every aspect of this culture being extraordinary to Western eyes, we must remember that once the warring feudal states were pacified, Japan was officially closed by the Tokugawa Edict in 1623. Nobody in, nobody out, under pain of death. This complete isolation ushered in the Edo period. Trade was effectively cut off. Christianity and Christian priests were absolutely forbidden, and the buds of their missionary efforts were crushed. Many priests were even crucified. Guns were outlawed for the more civilized katana. In the single-minded effort to ensure stability, this edict effectively sealed off Japan for over 200 years. Official trade with the U.S. did not open until 1853. This is a long time for a culture to marinate in its own crazy little bubble, a bubble that no outside influence penetrated for generations. What these Westerners had witnessed, the unquestioning loyalty manifesting itself in the form of seppuku, is truly the result of an extremely strict and rigid structure at work. Stemming from holding absolute fidelity as its most important value, what made something as extreme as this possible is the Bushido Code. Medieval Japan, during the Age of Wars, was a violent, dangerous time plagued by widespread anarchy. In this highly stratified, caste-like system, samurai were the sole society members allowed to be armed, and they wielded nearly absolute power over commoners. They basically had a license to kill anyone below their status, even over the most minuscule offenses. At times, this devolved into indiscriminate murder. The practice of sujigiri, literally crossroad killings, was an extreme example of this abuse of privilege. If a samurai received a new katana and wanted to test its edge, or maybe had a new technique he wanted to try out, or perhaps he just wanted to experience the thrill of killing, one might lay wait on a dark road until a random unarmed passerby approached. Then spring out and slaughter them. You can easily see that this vast, unchecked power needed to be tempered, governed, and guided. The Bushido Code was meant to provide this guiding light. Although the word Bushido itself doesn't really appear until the Edo period in the beginning of the 1600s, the way of the warrior had been evolving organically as an unwritten set of rules and ideals for generations. At its roots, it was structured by a series of virtues. Righteousness, courage, compassion, respect, integrity, honor, self-control, but above all, loyalty. This code was also highly influenced by and intertwined with the prevailing Shinto and Zen Buddhist religions of the time making this version of chivalry the rule of the island, especially in its isolation. Not just trained killers with swords, a strict fanatical adherence to this code is what made the samurai what they were. Hideyoshi Tokugawa himself had once been a peasant who then rose to be samurai, and eventually the supreme ruler of Japan. He would be the one to unite this country after hundreds of years of war. To him and all samurai... Bushido was essentially his religion. And like any religion, its goal was to control. We must remember what samurai means. The original translation is, one who serves. By following this way of the warrior, the concept of loyalty to their master was closer to that of, well, a Templar knight to the Ten Commandments, or the will of the Pope. 
I feel like that's the only really fair comparison to the many iterations of the European knight and their concepts of chivalry and knightly fidelity. Christian knights at the height of the Crusades showed loyalty to their pope and God and their religion with fanatical resolve, but on a personal level, from the many examples of fighting, killing, and dying, samurai put service to their master at perhaps an even higher level than the crusader ever did to the word of his God. I mean, how many Christian knights committed ritual suicide after failing to keep Jerusalem? Bushido is a truly death-centric set of virtues. Being prepared and willing to lay down one's life for their master was the beating heart of this code. And when I say death-centric, death was at the very core of this belief structure. A good death in and of itself was its own reward. Something akin to Viking notions of Valhalla, death in battle, death in the service of one's master, was a way to solidify one's status for all time, to achieve that all-encompassing quest for honor. A life lived by the code was in itself a constant preparation for death. At this point, maybe you can draw some parallels to martyrdom and Christianity and Islam, but Bushido Code takes these similar themes to an even more warlike extreme. In this light, the way of the warrior was not really a guide to living life, but as Yamamoto Sunetomo puts it, it is the way of dying. The mantra of the samurai is to live as though one was already dead to be willing to sacrifice oneself at any moment in order to be true to his Lord. This resolution to die was believed to allow one to attain a higher state of life, something far more pure, something more beautiful and graceful beyond the reach of those concerned with self-preservation. This absolutist interpretation of Bushido Code was laid out in the spiritual guidebook known as the Hagakure, the book was a compilation of commentaries from the samurai we mentioned just a moment ago, Yamamoto Sunetomo. He was so hardcore that he even criticized the 47 Ronin's patient, carefully planned revenge plot because justice was not enacted immediately enough. He commented that Kira could have died in the interim, thus squandering their master's honor as well as their own. The Hagakure romanticized and glorified this gory period and became the interpretation of the samurai ethos, especially in the 1930s. Something like the Bushido New Testament. The way of the warrior had far-reaching effects long after the samurai class itself had been abolished. President Teddy Roosevelt raved about the extremely popular international bestseller Bushido, Soul of Japan, written by Nitobe Anazo. Teddy, ever the standard-bearer for hyper-masculinity, bought a hundred copies and gave them to his staff and friends. This Bushido concept provided a rich and storied legacy of extreme honor and loyalty, from the tale of the 47 Ronin to Kunsonoki Masashige's infamous last wish to have seven more lives to give for his emperor. This warrior spirit had come to define Japan. But how does that translate into the modern world? In 1904, the Japanese would fight a war that would give the world a glimpse of what modern warfare would look like. The Russo-Japanese War would culminate in one of the largest ever land battles in human history. At the Battle of Mukden, 300,000 Russian troops were defeated by 340,000 Japanese troops, which is just outrageous numbers, and I bet you've never heard of this before, and you know what? I sure as hell didn't either until I climbed down this rabbit hole. So... 
please allow me to escort you down some lesser-known paths of glory, but I promise you, this vein leads directly to the kamikaze heart. At the turn of the 19th century, the Japanese finally traded in their katanas for rifles, making their bid for rapid modernization and dominance of the Pacific. Harnessing their age-old martial spirit, they pursued an expansionist policy, first attacking China, then capturing Taiwan and pulling Korea into its sphere of influence. Meanwhile, Russia was doing about the same thing from the north, moving into Chinese Manchuria on the heels of the Boxer Rebellion, with the goal of connecting their new Trans-Siberian Railroad to Port Arthur, which was their only warm-water port on that side of the globe. Needless to say, Japan really didn't take kindly to this kind of encroachment. When negotiations between the Japanese and the Russians broke down, the Japanese launched a stunning surprise attack which crippled the Russian fleet at Port Arthur. Then, only after the attack, did they declare war, which I guess makes Pearl Harbor kind of a sequel, huh? Now, I will try my best not to get bogged down here, but this little stone caused really big ripples. The real turning point for our story comes at the Battle of Tsushima Bay. This would be one of the last great ship-to-ship classic naval battles ever fought. It was essentially the tactics of the Battle of Trafalgar with wireless technology, truly the old meeting the new, and showing the Western world how the next war would be fought. On the moonless night of May 27, 1905, Admiral Togo Hirachiro, commander of the Japanese Navy, stumbles by chance on the Russian hospital ship Orel in the fog-blanketed Tsushima Strait. In accordance to the rules for hospital ships, Orel is burning visible lights at all times. Upon seeing Togo's ships, not realizing that they are the enemy and hoping to avoid a crash in the gloom, she signals, More Russian ships inbound! And by doing so, she accidentally serves up her comrades on a silver platter. Togo now has the jump on the entire Russian fleet. He quickly relays a telegraph message that alerts and assembles every warship under his command, something completely impossible just years prior. His message reads, Enemy in Square 203. And yes, things at this stage really do work just like they do in the board game Battleship. After a year of bloody battle, this war had been marked by vicious sieges, human wave tactics, and ugly stalemate. Togo knows that this is the battle. If he can break the back of the Russian Navy here, it could prove to be the decisive moment in the entire war. On the morning of battle, with Togo's forces amassed, ready to spring their trap, he orders the Z flag hoisted, which, in those multicolored naval signal flags, has been given the following predetermined meaning. The fate of the Empire rests on the outcome of this battle. Let each man do his utmost. Now, to the Japanese sailors and any soldiers from any nation worldwide, this message was enough to give even the most hardened Navy man chills. This was a callback to the legendary Admiral Horatio Nelson's last signal before the epic Battle of Trafalgar. His read, England expects every man will do his duty. It was the most famous and most badass message ever hoisted in the history of naval warfare. At Trafalgar, the decisive naval engagement of the Napoleonic Wars, England took control of the seas, thus destroying any possibility of a French invasion. It was this most famous moment that Togo wanted each of his men to recall. 
a few years down the road, the Japanese would call it back yet again and raise this infamous Z flag before launching their attack on Pearl Harbor. Togo seizes this moment by the throat, and in his attack, he manages to execute the classic holy grail of naval maneuvers known as crossing the T. He sends his fleet of five battleships plus 50 cruisers and destroyers across the head of the Russian line, allowing each one in turn to open up with the full strength of their broadside guns, erupting in a hail of cannon fire. Although the Russians can only reply with their forward batteries, their gunnery is surprisingly good. Togo's flagship, the Mikasa, was hit over 15 times in just five minutes of fighting, and she would be hit another 15 times before the day was won. This quickly turned into a good old, honest-to-God pitched naval battle. Steam-fired engines belch smoke as the fleets blast volley after volley of cannonade. After 90 minutes under this withering barrage, Russian battleship Osilyaba takes a direct hit, alighting her magazine and sending her up in a column of red flame. Then another. The Bordino erupts like a volcano, the shockwaves rocking every nearby fighting vessel. By nightfall, Togo's maneuver had taken its toll, but he wasn't done by a long sight. In the darkness, he sends out his fleet of small torpedo boats, never letting off the pressure. These little fast movers harry the foundering Russian fleet, buzzing in and out of their searchlights like a pack of wolves chasing down wounded elk in the moonlight. Daybreak finds the Russian fleet decimated, shredded, coughing the black smoke of their death rattle. But Togo was still not finished. He was determined not to allow a single Russian ship to live to fight again. Cutting off their escape route, he opens fire again, slamming the helpless Russian fleet with a sustained, withering fusillade. The surviving Russian admirals scramble to hoist the signal flags, spelling out XGE, the International Signal of Surrender. They were done, dead in the water, but still, the Japanese rained hell down upon them. The Japanese simply did not have a flag code for surrender. Surrender just did not exist for them so they kept firing. In their desperation, the Russians tried everything, anything, even hoisting up the damn white tablecloths. But it wouldn't be until they dug out the imperial flag of the Japanese Navy and flew it on their own masthead that Togo was finally satisfied. This is the victory that thrust the Japanese Navy to the world stage as a dominant power in Asia. Historians at the time, and even today, look at this as one of the most pivotal naval battles since Trafalgar. It was a stunning and absolutely humiliating loss for the Russians. They had lost every one of the 11 battleships committed to the fight. The Japanese? They didn't lose a single one. This heralded Japan's rise as a modern military power and instilled a pride in the Japanese navy that would fuel desires for new conquest, eventually manifesting its full fury in the Second World War. One man who this battle left a clear impression on was Isoroku Yamamoto, the soon-to-be infamous architect of the Pearl Harbor attacks, whom we delved into earlier. This incredible victory was the first action for the 21-year-old Naval Academy graduate, and his body would bear the scars to prove it, even losing a few fingers in the fight. With Togo the shining star of the Navy, 
Japan would be given another hero with an even more controversial and lasting legacy. General Nogi Marasuke would become a national icon and the epitome of modern samurai with a victory that broke the Russians back. After months of slaughter and heavy casualties, even losing two of his own sons in the bitter siege, Nogi would finally capture the all-important Port Arthur and then lead troops in the massive, culminating battle of Mukden, which finally destroyed the Russian threat once and for all. This was the first time any Asian country had beaten a Western world superpower like that of the Russian Empire. Teddy Roosevelt himself would actually be the arbiter of the peace treaty, he himself having much admiration for these overachieving Japanese. As the nation celebrated the greatest moment of their modern history, a new reinvigorated martial spirit was born. But regardless of how modern they became and how many Western tactics they adopted, the ancient warrior ethos of their ancestors was never far away. The figure responsible for Japan's new form as a world power was the Meiji Emperor. And when he died, the most iconic hero of the war, Nogi Marasuke, as any good samurai should, chose to follow his lord and master into the afterlife. On the morning of September 13, 1912, while the emperor's funeral procession was leaving the palace, Nogi first helped his wife plunge a tanto knife into her corroded artery, then turned the blade on himself, committing ritual seppuku. To quote one newspaper reaction from the time, it did not seem possible that one of the best-known figures in Meiji national life had committed Junshi. In a nation in the midst of a solemn celebration of its modernity, its foremost soldier had followed a custom that had been outlawed by the Tokugawa shogunate as antiquated in 1663. I really can't understate the gravity of this act. This demonstration of the true, lasting power of Bushido sent a message to the military and the nation that the old ways would never die. Nationalists and conservatives in the government seized on this as a way to revive the Bushido code, at least the fanatical loyalty part, especially as the nation's democratic institutions surrendered to near-complete militarization. This interpretation of suicide as an act of loyalty by a national hero served to reignite the way of the warrior. One person who this left a big impression on was the soon-to-be emperor, Hirohito. Although he was just a child when Nogi's suicide happened, he was reportedly overcome with emotion, tears welling up in his eyes. He was so moved that he was unable to speak. He would later credit this moment as one that instilled in him the samurai precepts of stoic endurance and dignity and bravery, not only in battle, but in laying down one's life for their master. In the new nation that would emerge from this glory period, it would be the emperor rather than the shogun to whom these modern samurai would swear loyalty, and it was for the emperor for whom they would be expected to die for. So, Let's talk a little bit about this emperor. What the emperor was to the Japanese is a little tricky to get your head around from a Western perspective. Under the 1889 Meiji Restoration Constitution, the emperor was literally an incarnate deity with divine power over the country. This was written in ink right there on the page, 
even further blurring or intertwining the state and religious authority. This divine right was derived from the Shinto belief that the emperor was the offspring of the sun god Amaratsu. This lineage is a hereditary monarchy that dates all the way back to something like 660 BC, making it the oldest continuous monarchy of all time, and it's actually still in place to this very day, making it unbroken for over 2,600 years. So, rather than like a president or Darfurer, the emperor was seen as a reverend embodiment of divine harmony instead of the actual head of a government or state. Fun fact, for generations, emperors also officially practiced polygamy, so that's a fun little perk. Gotta keep that bloodline going. Emperor Hirohito's reign was heralded as the Age of Enlightened Peace. Ha! <laughs> well, one thing was for sure, the emperor was the most important, most worshipped icon in the nation. In their own words, Japan without the emperor was not Japan. Japan without the emperor cannot be imagined. And it would be this sentiment that would later influence MacArthur's handling of the emperor in the post-war, but we'll get there. The emperor, first and foremost, was the head of the Shinto religion. Being that he's a descendant from the gods and all that, this kind of makes him something like the Pope and maybe the Queen of England all in one. But even Shinto is less of what we would see as a religion with the worship of a central god and a sacred text, but rather a way of life a collection of myths and shrines with the goal of being in touch with kami or spiritual energy through sacred rituals. And by the 1930s, Shinto basically was the national religion. The two were completely intertwined. When the state took over Shinto, it became not explicitly religious, but more of a traditional and patriotic practice built into the state bureaus, which was very clever. They were aiming for unity of government and tradition, but not a religion. Thus, making it super-religious. As the state took more and more control, they took over the shrines, then they took over education, and they reframed and taught the emperor's divine lineage as a historical fact. School children completed a ritual of praying and bowing to the emperor's portrait every day while the shrine system aligned to support his divine status. By claiming this super-religiousness, state Shinto could still be considered a practice in line with freedom over religion thus endearing itself in a way that an actual religion could not. With the emperor being the symbol of the Japanese people, as well as the center of their religious lives, the militarists took every possible chance to use this loyalty to their advantage. They were soon calling on soldiers to fulfill the wishes of his majesty and demonstrate respect for his imperial benevolence, and eventually, to die for your emperor. As many POWs would later attest, as Japanese, they would, quote, fight unhesitatingly, even with nothing more than bamboo poles, if the emperor so decrees. The Japanese do not have a god or goddess for love, but they do have a litany of gods of war, battle, and vengeance. As far back as 1869, the state took over the creation of shrines and temples, which were hugely important to the daily lives of all Japanese. In addition to the giant Yasukuni Shrine for Honorable War Dead, countless more were commissioned, almost every one being devoted to those who had fallen in battle for their emperor. These warrior deities were put into textbooks. Official state ceremonies and holidays were injected at every turn. This pushed even further patriotic nationalism and militarism, especially in reverence for military dead and their kami, which were the souls or spirits that would literally be enshrined there.
This worship of warrior deities was taken to new heights after the 1932 Battle of Shanghai, where three young privates made the ultimate sacrifice. Carrying three-meter tubes of bamboo packed with dynamite, they dashed across barbed wire, machine gun fire, finally diving into a Chinese fortress and blowing themselves up, thus allowing the Japanese army to advance. This story, known afterwards as The Three Brave Heroes as Human Cannons, was glorified and written into textbooks and incorporated into every school. The song Soul of the Japanese People was written about it, This even inspired a hugely popular kabuki play. Endlessly promoted by the state, the public became obsessed with it. Kindergartners sang the song in school. Money and donations flowed to the families of these, well, let's call them what they were, suicide bombers. Their mothers were summoned to Tokyo and honored. They were revered and given high status for sacrificing their sons. Throughout the country, Statues of these three young boys carrying their land torpedoes were erected so that children and adults were constantly reminded to follow in their example. Every effort was made to exalt this patriotic sacrifice. What makes this instance so profound and profoundly fucked up is that in 1965 it came out that the boys' lives could have been spared all along. If only the general had given them longer fuses, which he had. However, the general chose not to. These boys were deliberately sacrificed in order to enshrine them as an example. This was a really wild time in Japan. As the ultra-nationalists rose to power, the emperor too ascended. Up until now, he really didn't have any actual political power, but the tectonic plates shifted when he was allowed to essentially fire the prime minister. The next prime minister was shot and mortally wounded. The one after that was assassinated by naval officers upset about a treaty limiting warship expansion. A colonel deemed unpatriotic was slashed to death with a katana. Then, in 1936, over 1,400 soldiers mutinied in Tokyo, seizing the army ministry and murdering several high-ranking politicians. The emperor himself even survived an assassination attempt by hand grenade from a Korean leftist desiring freedom for his peninsula. Much like what would be seen in the rise of the Nazis, there was blood being spilt in the streets. By 1937, Japan's conflict with China finally turned into an all-out war, spiking with what would be known as the Rape of the Nanking, where 200,000 civilians and POWs were massacred. All this, including the use of chemical weapons against China regardless of treaty, was sanctioned by this seemingly meek and frail descendant of the gods. Thus was the tumultuous sea that served as incubator for what would become the Second World War. For the public, on a human level, the most powerful tool to motivate was not always logic or what they stood to gain, but by harnessing the myth, weaponizing the culture that gave Japan its uniquely warlike persona. As we had mentioned, Battleship Yamato's sister ship was christened with the name Musashi, The serialized version of that epic samurai ballad was hugely popular and became instrumental in marshalling fighting spirit. The Bushido values laid out in the book were seen to transcend modernism. It framed war and combat as purifying. Death was a duty. And thus, those who died for the emperor would bloom as flowers of death. Death was aesthetically beautiful, and a debt one ultimately owed. 
the Japanese Ministry of Information took every effort to capitalize on this samurai obsession and commissioned a film version of the 47 Ronin, which actually released just one week before the Pearl Harbor attacks. And although the film was not well received, the state still always sought to fuel their warrior nation with imagery of their blood-soaked heritage. And it was working. As the fires of war began to rage in earnest, the state would continue to use and rely on celebrated martyrdom to set an example for its people. Still early in the war, on the Attu Islands, 3,000 doomed and abandoned Japanese soldiers led the first of what was to be many, many hopeless mass attacks. Marooned and without hope of rescue, rather than surrender, the Japanese launched a final bonsai charge, which at first surprised the Americans and broke through their lines, resulting in brutal hand-to-hand combat in Arctic conditions. The battle only ended when just about every last Japanese soldier was killed. Of the 2,351 in that final charge, only 28 were taken prisoner. Later, in 1943, at the Battle of Guadalcanal, a 25-year-old officer cadet followed the example set forth at Attu when he and his entire division decided on a suicide charge rather than surrender. The emperor deitized the young officer and held a series of state funerals at Okinawa, already knowing then that it would be the stage for the next great battle. In honoring their glorious deaths, over 10,000 people attended to watch 6,000 students march in a week-long series of parades. As the war began to turn in favor of the Americans, propaganda and the control of the Japanese collective soul would be supremely important. This classical, fanatical fidelity, hinged on the word of the emperor, was amazingly powerful. One example that always hits me right in the soul is the story of Bonsai Cliff, made famous in the final days of the Battle of Saipan. As the island fell, the emperor personally found the thought of Japanese civilians who were caught in the crossfire and defecting to the Americans very disturbing. The island was populated by poor, low-caste people who might be surprised by the generous, humane treatment from the U.S. Propaganda had again and again hammered into them that the Americans were nothing but devilish barbarians coming to rape and slaughter and then mutilate their bodies, which was a huge no-no in the Shinto belief structure. Rather than hand the U.S. a powerful PR weapon, which could subvert the stoic Japanese fighting spirit, the emperor made an official decree encouraging civilians of Saipan to commit suicide rather than be captured. He promised that all civilians who took this honorable end would be granted an equal spiritual status in the afterlife, on par with that of the soldiers who died in combat defending the island. As a testament to his power, whole families, mothers with their babies at their breasts, at least a thousand civilians killed themselves, many leaping to their death off of what is now known as Bonsai Cliff. I mean, these are civilians. The bonsai charges, the mass suicides, they would come to be called gyokusai, which translates to something like shattered jewel. This kind of death was aestheticized as exploding into infinite beauty, a beauty that cannot be destroyed even in death, but instead is made more eternal by death in this way. It's just the most romantic way to picture one's own destruction. The Japanese held tight to a concept of one soul for 100 million, something similar to German Volk, where there is a shared cultural oneness. 
The Japanese saw this type of shared fate as the highest possible expression of their connectivity. These were a people that were raised not just to die in defeat, but to die together splendidly, in a blaze of carnage so terrible that it's actually beautiful. Now we shall see what this fatalism mutates into when boiled in the pressure cooker of extreme desperation. We leap ahead to October 1944. Back to the wail of air raid sirens. The Japanese have been witness to a gut-wrenching series of catastrophic disasters. The destruction of their empire, the annihilation of their prized fleet, the slaughter of their civilians in holocaustal high-altitude bombing. The American juggernaut steams closer and closer with the fall of each island. It is in this absolutely desperate moment that control of the naval air force is wrested to none other than Takahiro Onishi, a man who would become infamously known as the father of kamikaze. So I know it's been a long road and we started at the very beginning, but it's all been leading here. Takehiro Onishi was renowned as an aggressive samurai-style commander, headstrong, known to follow his own convictions regardless of the circumstance. He was one of the first major innovators and implementers of combat naval strategy. As a key developer of the Imperial Japanese Naval Air Service, he became something like Yamamoto's right-hand man. Although it was his research and development that made the technical aspects of Pearl Harbor possible, he himself opposed the attack on grounds that it would put them up against a foe whose wealth of resources would inevitably overwhelm Japan. Isn't that just insane? Two of the most key figures in planning and executing the attack that brought Japan into World War II against the Americans did not ultimately believe the war could be successful. It's just really hard to fathom. Having been heralded the conquering hero of the Philippines just years earlier, Oishi now returns to a very different scene. U.S. bombers own the skies with unimpeded rain, hunting relentlessly to crush the remaining Japanese air force, which was now hidden in caves, forests, and camouflage bunkers scattered across the small islands. With their bases in the Philippines decimated, the main force that Onishi inherits was down to just 30 planes. Facing such utterly bleak prospects, we must again note that every action Oishi would now make was based on the premise that Japan would never quit. He could never have expected that Japan would surrender in less than a year. What Onishi was now tasked with was nothing less than turning the tide of the war at any cost. And furthermore, he would have to tackle this bleak task without the guidance of his former mentor Yamamoto, whose fate, I must say, is wonderfully appropriate. Just after the fall of Guadalcanal, Yamamoto had planned a morale-boosting inspection tour through the South Pacific, but U.S. codebreakers got wise to this and were able to figure out his itinerary, including arrival and departure dates. Upon hearing this intel, FDR came back with just two words. Get him. With orders to be carried out immediately, this top-secret mission would be known as Operation Vengeance. On the morning of April 18th, Yamamoto and his escort group was hunted down and jumped by an interceptor squadron of 16 P-38 Lightning. In the ensuing dogfight, Yamamoto's plane was blasted out of the sky and crashed in the jungle below. His corpse was later found, having been thrown clear of the shredded wreck, sitting upright, still fashioned to his flight seat, with a white-gloved hand clutching the hilt of his katana. The hero of Pearl Harbor, 
the sword of the emperor, died by taking two 50 caliber slugs to the face, the fatal one entering his lower left jaw and exiting above his right eye. U.S. Captain Thomas George Lamphere Jr., one of the heroes of this perfectly executed ambush, and the man giving credit for killing Yamamoto, only broke radio silence after the deed was done to say, that son of a bitch won't be dictating any terms in the White House after all. In light of this dwindling military leadership, it now fell on Onishi alone to destroy the U.S. carrier fleet. Somehow. This is where his samurai ethos of, quote, a man must live in such a way that he is always prepared to die, would truly come to bear. As we have expounded on this earlier, the Japanese were running out of planes and qualified pilots to fly them, especially after the slaughter at the Marianas. Up until now, they had been using a tactic called skip bombing. Using zeros and principally the Nakajima Tenzin bomber, known to the U.S. simply as Jill, you would fly fast as hell and low as snake shit, dropping the bombs bad breath close to the enemy and allowing them to skip over the waves like a stone, and hopefully hitting the target ship. Then you'd have to rip an incredibly acrobatic maneuver so the bombs didn't A, bounce off the waves and hit your plane, or B, you yourself were not caught in the bomb blast. This was a tricky, artful maneuver, and a second's hesitation or miscalculation was fatal. Used all over the war by many nations, it was an effective attack when you didn't have torpedoes available, or you needed to hit smaller, more agile ships immediately. Where torpedoes needed a slow approach and could take up to seven minutes to hit, these skipped bombs went boom real quick, and allowed the pilots to spend minimal time in opposing anti-aircraft gun sights. But it was a highly difficult, highly risky maneuver that took great, great skill, skill that could only be learned through rigorous hands-on training. The Japanese didn't have the time, nor the planes, nor the flyers to make this maneuver happen. And using your most valuable pilots on such a difficult and risky tactic meant expending the only capable pilots left. At this point, returning from any type of sortie was very, very slim, and there was certainly no guarantee of carrying off a successful strike by even their most experienced pilots, even when they died trying. They had been relegated to sending up boys with just hours behind the stick against the most skilled and experienced pilots anywhere. Not to mention having to contend with good old whistling death, the U.S. boys were ripping through zeros in their shiny new Corsairs. So, through the samurai lens, if one is bound to die, what is more natural than to desire to die effectively, at maximum cost to the enemy? Instances of body crashing did have precedent. It was seen employed air-to-air -air by one Lieutenant Kano, who used his propeller to saw the tail rudder off a of B-29 after he had expended all his machine gun ammo. This fearless maneuver saw him elevated to squadron leader. Individual impromptu crash dives were seen as far back as Pearl Harbor. Pilots whose planes were too damaged to continue were told to find a sweet target and plant their nose in it. In the same month that Onishi took over Naval Air Command, Rear Admiral Masafumi Arima's flight group was set to muster all their remaining aircraft and attack the Allied flotilla at Leyte Gulf. With the squadron taxiing on the runway, Arima is said to have stripped all rank and insignia from his flight suit, which is seen to reflect the pure white robe worn before ritual seppuku. He then told his men that he, quote, had no intention of returning alive, then took control of the lead zero. Now, although Arima did indeed not return from the battle, and the carrier USS Franklin did sustain some damage from some kind of falling plane debris, 
it's not exactly clear what happened in the air that day. Regardless, the imperial propaganda machine seized on this instance of, quote, extreme patriotism, claiming in its nationwide radio broadcasts and newspaper reports that Arima deliberately crash-dived into an enemy carrier. Arima was posthumously elevated to Vice Admiral and credited as the first officially recognized suicide attack, later known as Kamikaze. In light of their samurai past, the instances of Gyokusai, the shattered glass, the bonsai attacks, the human waves, the suicide charges, the celebrated sacrifices, all that has led us to this point, I think you know what happens next. Two days after Arima's death in this first kamikaze attack, Onishi calls a staff meeting with all remaining commanders of the Navy's ground-based aircraft and says, quote, In my opinion, there is only one way of assuring that our meager strength will be effective to a maximum degree. That is to organize suicide attack units composed of zero fighters armed with 250 kilogram bombs with each plane to crash dive into an enemy carrier. The emperor, the military, their culture had all essentially conspired to condone this type of action. Now, it was up to the fighter squadrons to make it happen. In the Russo-Japanese War, Togo had employed what he called a death-defying unit, which was sent to use their own ships to blockade Port Arthur, but it was not approved until a fair chance of rescue was provided. Yamamoto himself used little one-man midget submarines at Pearl Harbor, a tactic which led to near-certain death, but that too was not approved without some chance and plan to retrieve the submarine pilots. Neither of these instances were a suicide action in concept there was every effort to provide a means for the survival of these death-defying warriors. What Onishi is calling for is certain suicide. To carry out this mission, you die. That's the only way it works. This is a fatal concept. This again goes back to what kicked us off in the pilot, the Western versus Eastern versions of a suicide mission. To Western eyes, we can recognize Togo's death-defying unit and even Yamamoto's midget submarines. These are an understandable military order. Even on Yatu, when the remaining Japanese chose to charge against an overwhelming force. These actions ring of Tennyson's classic poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Cannon to the right of them. Cannon to the left of them. Cannon in the front of them. Volleys and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell. Boldly they rode and well, into the jaws of death. Into the mouth of hell rode the 600. But for those British boys, death was not the mission. They were meant to face incredible odds bravely, like soldiers, and to vanquish their enemy so that they may one day return home. But in the Eastern suicide mission, as we have said, you are the bullet. The bullet does not come home. To the admirals and soldiers alike, there was a clear, undeniable logic to this method. This strategy was the only way to ensure the most terrible results on their enemy with what little they had left at their disposal. Upon accepting the kamikaze tactic, one high-ranking admiral's words really hit home. Quote, 
In this hopeless situation, survival can only be accomplished by fighting to the last man. Then, even if we lose, posterity will have the heritage of our loyal spirit to inspire them in turn to the defense of our country. In war, soldiers ask only the chance to fight in support of the emperor. We shall fight to the last drop of blood. At this point, the Japanese have a very different definition of survival. Not with the goal of earning virgins in heaven, but instead to make themselves as a warrior people impossible to forget, to prove to the world that the Japanese race was worthy of reverence and veneration. This question of why is always elusive and hard to pinpoint, but in the official and unofficial pieces of the puzzle that begin to bring an answer into the light, this one aspect is seen over and over again. They sincerely felt that their duty and goal was to make the Japanese warrior culture indestructible forever, if only by attaining this glorious death. With Onishi charged with thwarting the landings at Leyte Gulf, from a practical standpoint, he sees only one real chance. Unleash upon them the super battleships Musashi and Yamato. Get those behemoths a crack at the U.S. transports. But to do this he would have to clear a path through the Allied air screen, which meant knocking out the U.S. carriers. Even if he could just ground the U.S. fighters for a day or two, it might prove enough to set loose the battleships. He now saw only one way to do this. He must shock and overwhelm the Americans with his new kamikaze tactic. His first chance to deploy would be as part of the show operation, show meaning victory, directed at the amphibious assaults at Leyte Gulf. Now, with the path illuminated and the admirals backing him, what he needed was pilots. And this was tricky. He could not just order or force men to carry out this kind of attack, no matter how brave or patriotic or courageous they were. It wouldn't work like with the Soviets telling their boys that you die by our guns or theirs, forcing them to realize that retreat was not an option, not that that really worked anyway. Now we arrive at the true gut-check moment for all that Japanese samurai Bushido cult bravado. What Ohinishi needed was for them to want to go. He knew that if he could get fighter pilots to do it, the surface fleet would join. And then the rest of the navy would want to take part. And then the whole of the army would have to follow. This is how he would set in motion the divine wind. Now, we really get a chance to see what these Japanese are made of. Commander Tadashi Nakajima addresses his assembled flyers by dim lantern light at a hidden airbase deep within the jungle. He explains, quote, Air strength is too hopelessly depleted to oppose the enemy effectively by orthodox methods of attack. This moment calls for the employment of crash-dive tactics. After explaining that he is to create the first of what will be four special attack units, he continues, quote, Any non-commissioned officer or enlisted flyer who wishes to volunteer will write his name and rate on a piece of paper. Those who do not wish to volunteer will submit a blank paper. Each piece is to be placed in an envelope which will be delivered to me by 2100 today. Due to the importance and secrecy of this mission, there shall be no discussion about it. Left in the deafening chorus of crickets, the men had three hours to make up their own mind. 
With hardly the chance to retreat to his quarters, Nakajima answers the urgent knocking at his door to find a scowling group of officers. The ranking member bursts into the room speaking belligerently, failing to bite back his anger. He says, You invited the non-com flyers to volunteer for the special attack, but you made no mention of the officers. What about us, sir? How can you not ask us first of all? Nakajima answers slyly. Why? What do you officers want to do? Sir, you must know that each one of us want to join the special attack squad. Nakajima can hardly hide his grin as he answers. Then, why should I bother to inquire whether you would volunteer? The officer slowly smiles in understanding. Thank you, sir. Each man, now brimming with pride and relief, bows deeply and exits. But one figure still remains. The man renowned for taking down a B-29 by shearing off its rudder with his propeller and living to tell the tale. He knows there will be more volunteers than planes available. Nakajima strides up to Kano, squarely looks him in the eyes and says, Worry not. One of those zeros is reserved for your special attack. Kano smiles, salutes, and exits. For these men, it was not only a matter of pride, but it can be seen as the next logical step. However, it is one thing to strike out in a blazing final suicide charge in the heat of battle when the vice grip of doom is tightening all around you, but these volunteers for death would not make their ultimate run for weeks, living all the while knowing their fate was sealed. As the battle rages across the Philippines, the kamikaze pilots are finally alerted to a worthy target. As they jog to their awaiting zeros, Hachimaki headbands tied tightly over their heads, the chorus of their ancient song drifts on the morning breeze. If I go away to sea, I shall return a corpse awash. If duty calls me to the mountain, a verdant meadow will be my tomb. Thus, for the sake of the emperor, I will not die peacefully at home. No, in classic Japanese soldiering songs, Johnny never did come marching home. Before leaving, Ohanishi's final briefing went like this. Japan is in grave danger. The salvation of our country is beyond the powers of ministers of state, the general staff, and lowly commanders like myself. It can only come from spirited young men such as yourself. On behalf of your hundred million countrymen, I ask of you this sacrifice, and I pray for your success. You are already gods without earthly desires. One thing you want to know is that your own crash dive is not in vain. Regrettably, we will not be able to tell you the results, but I shall watch your efforts to the end and report your deed to the throne. You may all rest assured at this point. I ask you all to do your best. Beating this mighty American foe was beyond human wisdom. The fate of Japan had been placed in the hands of men willing to die for their nation. The pilots share a final drink of water together. They are aware of their own significance, yet composed, tranquil, until that hellish whistle. Their zeros, left exposed too long on the runway, have offered the perfect target. Suddenly, Corsairs rip out of the sun with guns blazing. Bombs shatter the earth. Their precious planes are shredded by .50 tracers. 
The men scatter and dive for cover, but when the sky is finally clear, every plane is ablaze. This would happen again and again for the first few weeks. Kamikazes destroyed before takeoff or just after getting airborne. Some, once airborne, can't locate a target. Some take off and are simply never seen again. How difficult must it have been to believe you were entering the cockpit for the last time, readying your mind, body, and soul for this ultimate mission, only to have to make the cruel trip back home unsuccessful, and then do it all again tomorrow, like walking down to the gallows, the rope tied around your neck, the hood over your eyes, only to get a stay of execution. And as if things could not get more desperate, these Toko Raiders still needed to prove this concept. They still did not know if kamikaze worked. On October 25, 1944, one of the escort zeros of a five-man kamikaze mission that had left earlier that morning skids down the runway of Nakajima's jungle base. The pilot leaps out of his battle-scarred plane, sprinting to make his ecstatic report. He himself had witnessed Lieutenant Yuki Oseki's special attack unit carry out their kamikaze mission. Seki made his final signal and plunged from the heavens, striking a U.S. carrier, engulfing its refueling station in a golden fireball. The second plane was right on its heels, streaking through the stunned anti-aircraft screen and hitting nearly the identical spot, the second explosion igniting the magazine and sending up the carrier in a 1,000-meter column of flame. As the carrier, identified later as the St. Lo, erupted and sunk, a third 500-pound bomb-laden kamikaze smashed into a smaller cruiser, sinking it instantly. The fourth and fifth kamikazes struck another carrier, setting it ablaze and knocking it out of action. Finally, the relief, the joy, and excitement nearly caused Nakajima to weep. The worries that a pilot flying at top speed might instinctively close his eyes and miss the target in the final moment was dispelled. Any anxiety about the will of their flyers had truly been put to the test and thus dispelled. These were the first major targets destroyed by the kamikaze effort. Lieutenant Yukio Seki, the very first kamikaze volunteer of all time, along with his Shikishima Special Attack Unit, went five for five in their first and last sortie. They had proven this concept not only possible but hugely successful solidifying this moment as an epochal tactical turning point. Not only that, but it was a sorely needed, massive morale boost. Radio Tokyo hailed these men as national heroes. All other pilots saw this extraordinary sacrifice as inspirational. Now, more than ever, these suicide warriors were raging to leap into the fire. While the special attack units operated in the Philippines from October 1944 to January 1945, they would commit a total of about 425 kamikazes into the fight. Their damage tally went like this. Two carriers and 23 others put out of action or damaged. Five battleships damaged. 16 destroyers and cruisers or smaller ships sunk and another 87 damaged. This boiled down to something like a 1 in 4 success rate. But the true result is hardly quantifiable by numbers. Aside from just hard physical damage, this tactic not only fanned the flames of Japanese fanaticism, but it scared the shit out of the Allies. Once again, highlighting the alien factor of this enemy. On Iwo Jima and Peleliu and Okinawa, the Marines were already not taking prisoners, 
forced to continually ask themselves while mopping up some burned-out pillbox or facing crazed, abandoned men defending themselves with nothing but a samurai sword and their last grenade, why can't they just surrender? Now, in this new, infinitely more intense air-to-ship battle, if a kamikaze managed to pierce the air screen, much like on those beaches and in those jungles, it would very quickly become just you and him, facing down that screaming, buzzing propeller with a stone-cold killer behind the stick. The warfighting psychology had changed. In one of my favorite instances of gallows humor, terrified sailors on smaller cruisers and destroyers would steal paint and write things like carriers this way with a giant arrow on the deck of their ships, hoping the suicide pilots would point their efforts at other targets. Facing down kamikazes was a brand new nightmare for the boys at sea. Weathering any kind of airborne attack on a ship of any size when floating on the endless plain of the ocean is gut-wrenching. You've got nowhere to run, no place to hide. But when you know the attacker considers his mortal flesh as a weapon, it just takes it one huge leap further. And it's a leap that no American Navy man has ever once considered for himself. In the wake of the first successful attacks, an important cablegram from the Emperor made its way to all the special attack bases. Pilots snapped to attention in assembly to hear the divine word. Onishi was the man to relay this message. When the Emperor was told of the special attacks, His Majesty said, Was it necessary to go to this extreme? Although, they certainly did a magnificent job. Onishi continued, His Majesty's words suggest that His Majesty is greatly concerned. We must redouble our efforts to relieve His Majesty of this concern. I have pledged our every effort toward that end. The Emperor's concerns were certainly warranted because while these special attacks were being executed, the lid on the coffin of the Japanese Navy was being nailed shut. At that epic catastrophe at Leyte Gulf, Japan lost three battleships, including the Musashi, four carriers, ten cruisers, and nine destroyers. Furthermore, Onishi's new tactic failed to thwart the Allied amphibious landings. Onishi may have taken the Emperor's words as criticism of the commander responsible for these tactics, but he had gone too far to turn back now. What was originally meant to be a short burst in order to tip the scales now became their only hope. With Japanese air strength down to just 2,000 aircraft in total, there was no longer any alternative. Kamikaze tactics was the only way that their inexperienced, untrained pilots had a chance to score a hit. In begging other branches to lend their resources to the kamikaze effort, Onishi made this case, quote, With so few planes, it is impossible for us to continue by conventional tactics. These young men, with their limited training, outdated equipment, and numerical inferiority are doomed by conventional fighting methods. It is as important to the commander as it is to the men that their death not be in vain. I believe, therefore, that a broad perspective indicates the wisdom of crash-diving tactics. To think otherwise would be taking the narrow view of the situation. I honestly think that it is better for all concerned to continue the suicide operations. And the proof was in the pudding. 
The second air fleet had used 250 planes in conventional attacks, and for all their losses, only managed to damage two cruisers and three destroyers. Yet on one single day, Onishi's Shikishima Special Attack Group had sunk a carrier and a cruiser and knocked out two or three other ships, with just five planes. Faced with this cold, hard math, the second air fleet had no real choice other than to greenlight their own full-scale special attack program. Kamikaze had gone full-blown, and needless to say, volunteers poured in. Contrary to how American propaganda depicted them, and probably how most people even currently perceive them, these men were not doped-up, rabid zealots, but from all that I have read and just about any personal account from those who were there as witnesses, I can only describe the picture that is painted as one of extremely devoted sons of Japan. Most were well-educated college seniors, bright and skilled enough to make it through military academies and flight school, certainly at a high enough level to become Navy pilots. The commanders of the special attack squadrons would later stand accused of killing off the nation's educated youth. These boys were solemn, sober, highly diligent, and seriously focused. But at the same time, there are moments that remind me of the camaraderie of a high school football team. But no matter how young, patriotic, or naive, these men had no illusions. They were well aware that their orders amounted to go out and die in battle. Having already offered their lives to the emperor when they became soldiers, to them, this is just another form of duty, albeit an extreme. And at the same time, it was a massive honor. And apart from all this, the gravity of their situation, the psychological aspect, the actual job they were tasked with completing was a truly difficult one. It was in fact difficult to even get planes off the ground at this point. The Americans owned the sky and they filled it with countless eyes, scout planes, high-altitude bombers, carrier-borne Avengers, all hunting around the clock, scouring the green below for any sign of a Japanese runway or airfield. The Imperial Air Force, well, what was left of it, was scattered, hidden across a multitude of tiny jungle islands, their precious planes stored deep in caves, any structures camouflaged with palm fronds. When a target was acquired, it was a mad scramble to get into the air. You had a tiny window to get the planes out of hiding and off the runway. Being caught taxiing out in the open was a death sentence. And even worse, once discovered, the jig was up. When the Americans had your number, they would stop at nothing to smite that airfield for good. Once airborne, it was pedal to the metal all the way. Maximum speed must be maintained if you hoped to catch your distant moving target. There was no room for braking formation or slowing down whatsoever, especially with the otherwise light and quick zeros now weighed down with the burden of 250 kilogram bombs. Then it would be crossed fingers and furrowed brows as you hoped and prayed that the enemy would materialize. That is, without being intercepted first. Zeros, now dragging ass, unable to employ evasive maneuvers with their heavy bomb loads, stripped of machine guns, piloted by neophytes, protected by maybe a two-fighter escort, they would be juicy targets for roving U.S. hunter-killers. The escorts would always have to be the best pilots available, much to the anger of veteran flyers and commanders who wanted desperately to take up the mantle of kamikaze for themselves. 
now charged with the supremely important task of guarding the kamikaze squadrons. However, they could only play a defensive role. If they slowed down at all to engage the enemy, or even if they were attacked from behind, they would lose all chance of catching back up with the sortie, which would be at full throttle all the way. It was in fact a tall order just to locate your elusive target. Using dead reckoning to track down some last known coordinates that could be hours old, there was a whole lot of ocean out there, making it nothing short of a miracle to actually spot your quarry. So many sorties were forced back or never heard from again, simply because they got lost or ran out of fuel or got caught en route or just plain disappeared into the ether. But nonetheless, miracles do occur. If you were lucky enough to spot the enemy, target selection was paramount. The Japanese could ill afford to squander lives, fuel, and planes carelessly. Cruisers and destroyers were hardly worth the expenditure. But if the intel was correct and you did get a crack at one of those big, beautiful carriers, you truly had one shot to make your mark. Could you imagine being in that cockpit? Every ounce of concentration scouring the endless blue below? Then suddenly, something between the cloud cover. Holy shit. One of the fabled, massive, Essex-class carriers reveals herself. Like a skyscraper laying on its side out on the glistening expanse of the Pacific. It's the first time you've ever seen one. First time you've ever seen anything so big. Hell, this may be the very first combat sortie of your life. The voice of your group leader breaking radio silence snaps you back to reality. This is it. This is real. The lead group of three would call their targets and then plunge their attack, while the second group would watch the result and react accordingly. Depending on the configuration below, these carriers never did travel alone, there were really two ways to attack. Varying your approach would help to confuse the defensive gunners and keep them guessing, giving your squad its best chance to break through. But ultimately, it was up to every pilot's own judgment how he wanted to execute his final moments. But first things first, for God's sake, do not forget to release the bomb safety. You don't trigger the bomb, it don't go boom. And goddammit, to end your life without the splash you deserve after all that, well, it's just sad. That being said, once you trigger it, you can't take it home with you. The high dive was best for that first opening gambit. From 20,000 feet up, you'd point your nose at a 20-degree angle to target, catching as much speed as possible, approaching hopefully undetected for as long as you could, staying high and fast until that last thousand feet. By now, charging through tooth-rattling explosions of flak and ak-ak fire. Then, the moment of truth. You would punch that throttle to a 45-degree angle, screaming straight down onto target from above. The sharper the angle, the more exact that plunging stab would have to be. The dream shot would be to hit the ship directly on top. Just slam dunk that shit, like hammering a nail or the falling of a guillotine. A perfect strike from above, ideally hitting the ship's central elevator, could literally split it in two. The other approach, the low-level charge, left you in the crosshairs of defensive machine gun fire much longer, but it was harder for them to predict. While your brethren screeched down from above hopefully providing some measure of distraction, you would charge the carrier low and fast, skimming the waves at just 10 meters, speeding straight down the leveled barrels of enemy guns, 
holding course as long as you could stand it. Then, at just a few hundred meters to target, you rip the stick straight back, pinning your body to the sea and rocketing up to 500 feet, only to punch dive straight back down, arcing like a death-bound roller coaster, slamming directly on top of your target, hopefully planting your propeller into the bridge of the carrier, and thus eviscerating the ship's vital nerve center. In the case of carriers Franklin and Bella Wood, kamikazes executed their mission to perfection. A six-plane Toko squad was able to land six direct hits, spread evenly three apiece across both ships. Though neither ship was sunk, the Franklin was so badly damaged it never returned to action. You can actually see footage of frantic damage control crews trying to put out the blazing Franklin shot from the deck of the Bella Wood. This footage, in fact, made it into the 1949 Gary Cooper Hollywood flick called Task Force. Now, these tactics were extremely difficult and extremely dangerous, but they only really differed from conventional approaches employed worldwide in those last few hundred meters. Typically, you'd be dropping a bomb or a torpedo and then breaking yourself to get the hell out of there. But take away the concern of what happens after you jettison your ordnance. Your job becomes immeasurably more simple. Well, because you are the ordinance. If you're not planning on coming back, you can take every chance toward meeting your singular goal. It allowed men to brazenly fly directly into AA fire, daring the gunners to shoot you down before you hit your mark. Since you are not correcting your final approach based on being able to ultimately pull up and escape, this removal of self-preservation equated directly to a huge spike in success rates. Your mission, to destroy the enemy, that massive, beautiful carrier that you have just now for the first time laid eyes on, would no way be sacrificed by accounting for the survival of the pilot. Again, you are the bullet. As small but inspiring successes were reported and triumphantly hailed in nationwide radio announcements, the results usually exaggerated and over-glorified, this figure of the kamikaze pilot, a Japanese son sacrificing himself for the land he loved, emerged as the most heroic example of all. Stirring accounts echoed over fantastical radio broadcasts made sure their reputation resounded far and wide. When small villages realized that the pilots billeted nearby were in fact kamikaze, they would bring offerings, and thus the kamikazes began to enjoy this new status as soon-to-be demigods. Life was otherwise ugly on these little ramshackle bases, Sleeping on straw mats in ragged uniforms with scant food and little else to do but pray not to be strafed by the enemy and wait for their call to die, a group of young pilots ventured to a nearby village, offering to help bring in the harvest. Nostalgic for home and their pre-war lives, this labor was a welcome respite from the looming task ahead. In return, they were given tons of sake, precious rationed sugar, and even a whole cow. That night, with no chance of flying in the near future, they were still waiting for a delivery of zeros which had been delayed by constant U.S. interdiction, they had what I'd guess you call a kamikaze party. With booze flowing freely, the otherwise strict rank and hierarchy loosened up considerably. Now, these men had all volunteered to be kamikaze, and were thus designated for special operations, but you still had to be individually selected for a given mission. And with so few planes available, each of these men were vying for their chance to die. With this on their minds and a few stiff drinks in them, 
Some pilots cornered Commander Nakajima, lobbying and petitioning to be chosen for the next sortie. One spouted off, I have been a member of the Special Attack Corps since the very first, and yet later volunteers have already gone. How long must I wait? As a collective grumbling took over, when the rest of the pilots saw their commander cornered, it was met with cries of, No fair! No special treatment! And general uproar. As the good-natured begging of sauced-up pilots became incessant, Nakajima was forced to jump up on a chair and shout over his men, saying, Enough! Don't be so selfish! Sooner or later, the time will come for each of us. Attacks will continue until peace comes to the whole world. Think of yourselves as being the first of many. No one should complain about what the order is. There is no discrimination by rank at the Yasukuni Shrine. As we touched on earlier, Yasukuni was the major shrine to Japanese war dead, where their spirits would all hopefully be reunited with their legendary forefathers upon completion of their final glorious deed. Something like a Japanese version of Valhalla. To put them at ease, Nakajima would remind them of Kunsonoki Masashige's son, who was just twelve at the time of his father's epically doomed bonsai charge at the Battle of Minotogawa. Although his son begged to join him in the final battle, his father forced him to leave, telling him that he must live to tell the emperor of what he witnessed, and take their example along with him, so that the next generation of warriors had something to emulate as they continued the fight. Only by invoking these dyed-in-the-wool myths could he get these men to focus on the larger picture and soothe their concerns. It shows how tightly tied to the mythos of their forefathers they truly were. Practicality and reason can show why this tactic was perhaps their best chance at inflicting maximum damage, but it was the story. The power of the ancient legends that got these pilots into those cockpits. Having finished his sake while Nakajima told his story, now imbued with some liquid courage, a volunteer asks, But sir, if precedence is determined by time of arrival, and you will have to send out so many pilots before you get your chance, surely, won't even I outrank you by then? This cracks up the men pretty good. Another one pipes up. Surely so will I. I guess all of us will. Say, what shall we do with the commander when he finally reports at Yasukuni? One answers, let's make him mess, sergeant. This suggestion is greeted with roars of approving laughter. Surely you can do better than that by me, protests Nakajima. Well then, perhaps mess officer. The men crack up even harder. Clearly, there was no question of morale amongst these men. Nakajima never once had to quell a mutiny or pick up their spirits. From everything that I've read, especially in the barracks, there seemed to be an utter lack of bitterness and gloom. Yet as fun and high school locker room-esque as this may feel, these men had no illusions, and they were deathly serious and professional about their mission. From Nakajima's memoir, he says, quote, on many occasions, I heard the men express this sentiment in words such as these. When we became soldiers, we offered our lives to the emperor. When we sortie, it is with the firm conviction that we will fulfill this offer to help defeat the enemy. We would be remiss to think otherwise. Therefore, special attack is just a name. The tactic, while unusual in its form, is just another way of performing our military obligation. There were no hysterics or theatrics. This was all in the line of duty. And these men wanted to do everything in their power to ensure that their last act would be not only one of glory and honor, but 
one of result. With so few planes, it was truly lucky to get your chance and to have one designated to you. That image of the kamikaze sipping a ceremonial cup of sake on the runway right before takeoff? Well, more often than not, it would just be water. They simply would not take any risk in affecting their combat ability. There's one story of three friends all from the same village who meet up purely by chance after years of devastating war, now as kamikaze volunteers. You'd expect this reunion to be joyful and happy, and it was, but a lot had changed since they had last seen each other. Naturally, two of the friends want to go out and have drinks and reminisce, but it's quickly revealed that the third friend is scheduled to fly his doomed mission on the next morning. He won't touch any alcohol. He won't even taste some of the prized and rare canned pineapple that one of them has managed to smuggle in with him. He says he must be in top condition. In fact, he wants to go to bed as soon as he can. He needs to be well rested for the morning. There's clearly something different about him. The difference between a kamikaze volunteer and a kamikaze preparing for his final mission, a new kind of focus. One of the friends would describe it later as a complete devotion to his duty and yet embodying a distant calm serenity. What would your last night be like? Knowing that with clear certainty, this is in fact your last night. On the eve of battle, every soldier must process and come to grips with the fact that he may die. Or maybe not. Maybe focus on something else, I don't know. I've never had to feel this sort of Damocles hovering above my neck, but for the man whose death is truly imminent, this moment is undoubtedly different. For the kamikaze, it was said that on their last night, they would be mystically united with death. This is a scene that has played out in war from antiquity all the way to modern times. A man preparing the night before battle. The Greeks would get legendarily shit-faced. <laughs> the Germans would do a lot of singing. But they all had a chance in the morning. To be sure, there is no if here. When you leave that runway, your fate is sealed. Now with special attack group strategy full-blown, Commander Tadashi Nakajima would travel from base to base, giving lectures to these newly-minted kamikazes on how best to inflict maximum punishment on their enemy. Always the subject and the lecturer were the same, but as the men accomplished their missions and new blood replaced them, the audience was one of constantly cycling faces. In his diary, he describes a constant tour of risky night flights to far-flung secret bases in order to address group after group of stoic, studious young men. Every would-be suicide pilot would sit transfixed, trying to absorb his every word, every bit of advice, every story of trial and error and success. Then, once finished, every hand would be raised with questions of how best to commit their final act. They wanted to nail down the particulars of speed and dive angle, so that they might make their death worthy of veneration for generations to come. After hours of dangerous flying from one remote location to another, always risking being intercepted by roving corsairs and, on this night, flying through a particularly nasty tropical storm, Nakajima lands weary and exhausted. Due to his hours late arrival, his lecture was cancelled and the pilots are given a very rare and coveted chance to watch a movie, so he decides to catch up on some much-needed sleep. But before he can close his eyes, there is a knock at his door. He opens it to find a young pilot who, with a polite bow, says, Sir, we have all been assigned to the Special Attack Corps with the important mission of destroying enemy ships. 
if the enemy should appear tomorrow, we would soar you without having the benefit of your lecture, and therefore would lack confidence. Every man is now assembled. We ask to hear your lecture rather than to see the movies. Will you please come and talk with us? This highlights the earnest diligence with which these men approached their grim task. Nakajima could not refuse, and sat with them until the wee hours of the morning, answering questions and preparing them on how best to die. He would later reflect on how eerie and frank the conversations would always become. He would hear the boys, while putting on flight gear and jogging to their waiting planes, talking about targeting the smokestack of an enemy ship as if they were trading casting techniques for a fishing trip, lending it an aura of something like a high school football team leaving the locker room before the big game. It's amazing how normalcy and duty will eventually always take hold no matter how dark the task. In some ways, this reminds me of Hannah Ardent's coined phrase about the banality of evil when referring to Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. Her thesis highlighted how this utter disconnect and inability to see things from another person's perspective was in part responsible for his evil deeds, perhaps even more than actual evil intent. Now, this will be a much larger subject for episodes to come, but we see faint echoes of it here. In this case, rather than the disconnect from the evil of one's deeds, this is more a disconnect between one's actions and their result, even when the result is your own death. Maybe it's a human coping mechanism designed to disassociate yourself from your fate, but I don't really see any kind of avoidance here. What I find most, whether it's exaggerated or not, are stories about the strange calm and peace that came over these boys in their final weeks. I've even heard it called clarity, acceptance, a discovery of meaning or purpose, even as attaining a kind of godliness. Isn't it strange how it's always our own feet that carry us to the gallows? Well, in this case, these fellows were absolutely sprinting. Another aspect of this show that cannot be ignored are the maintenance crews. These men had the incredibly difficult task of keeping these suicide flyers airborne. With planes constantly getting shredded from enemy strafing and bombing, runways getting cratered like the moon, hardly any chance of replacement equipment or spare parts, let alone replacement aircraft, even just keeping mechanized equipment alive and running in miserable jungle conditions, their job was extremely difficult and critically important, especially with these dire shortages making every single plane precious. And it was a job that they treated with religious zeal. Often working around the clock in impossible conditions, they would blame themselves for any kind of disappointment. Can you imagine being that kamikaze pilot? Your last letter home, sealed, doing all you can to fight back the fear, forcing yourself to leave your worldly concerns behind, now taxiing on the runway, your squad mates already airborne up ahead. With mind, body, and soul committed to your mission, you ease forward on the throttle, the engine roaring to life. Only to sputter to a halt. It is said that the sight of a frantic kamikaze pilot leaping out of the cockpit, screaming to the maintenance crews, Engine trouble! Get me another plane! was the most crushing and pitiful thing ever seen. While the silhouettes of his destiny-bound friends slip over the horizon, the heartbroken pilot in front of helpless maintenance crews and commanders alike was said to collapse on the runway, openly weeping in despair. With their triumph and failure inextricably linked, the maintenance men wholeheartedly appreciated the gravity of the kamikaze's mission, 
as well as the role in it which they had to play. They showed incredible reverence in how they took care of the pilots. Believing that the cockpit was essentially their coffin, they cleaned them until perfectly spotless, sometimes including religious tokens and even incense, which meant a great deal to the pilots because this is where they would be spending their final moments. About to take off, one kamikaze was so moved upon finding his cockpit covered in a blanket of brilliant flower petals, he leaps down and sprints over to his ground crew. The maintenance officer goes pale as he sees him running, obviously thinking the worst, some mechanical problem, but instead, the pilot stands before the crew and bows deeply, thanking them for the great gesture they have afforded him. As the pilot climbs back into the plane and accelerates for takeoff, he catches something out of the corner of his eye. The maintenance crew chief, now running to keep up with him, his outstretched hand on the wingtip. With tears in his eyes, he would run alongside until the plane's wheels left the earth for good. Even while the Japanese were being forced to pull out of the Philippines, volunteers, desperate to get their chance before the last aircraft were used up, were squeezing three at a time into one-man planes in order to catch a ride down to the staging areas. The final raid from these islands sent the last 15 zeros left on a one-way mission that resulted in seven direct hits, thus ending official special attack operations in the Philippines. Fresh out of aircraft, the remaining 30 volunteers were now ordered to become ground troops, putting an end to any hope of fulfilling their wish to become kamikaze. But in the morning, Nakajima was met with an impossible sight. By some miracle, out on the runway, waited five zeros, ready to fly. In the long months of their association, for pilot and ground crew alike, the zero had become the centerpiece of their lives, and the thought of burning what was left of the remaining inoperable planes was unthinkable, perhaps something akin to a cavalryman and a wounded horse. By working through the night and scavenging the various damaged hulks, they managed to scrap together five flyable zeros. Now, with five planes and still about 30 pilots, Nakajima assembles his men and asks again for volunteers, thinking that with the new prospect of fighting on land and thus having at least a slight chance of prolonging their lives, maybe some of the men would want to change their minds. But before the request is even out of his mouth, every single arm is thrust into the air, each man begging and shouting, Please, please, sir, please, commander, pick me! The men, edging forward in their desperate pleas, determined not to let this final chance evaporate. Nakajima is overwhelmed. Doing his best to hide his emotion, he says, Since all of you want so much to go, we will follow usual selection procedure. You are dismissed. But as he turns to leave them, several men follow, grabbing him by the shirt sleeves, begging again, Please, sir, please send me. He's forced to snap around and shout, Enough! Everyone wants to go! Do not be so selfish. This is enough to silence them, but as he slams the door behind him, he nearly collapses with emotion. Nakajima is human after all. He knows exactly what these men are begging him to do. He knows that by this order, his selection is a death sentence for whomever he picks. He can't help but feel the conflict, but also stand in awe of their spirit. As usual, the pilots were chosen purely on ability, with only one exceptional case taken into consideration. One of the original volunteers, one Lieutenant Nakano, had missed all other chances when he was hospitalized with tuberculosis. Now released but not yet fully recovered, he pleads with Nakajima to give him this last chance, 
being that any day he could relapse and most likely be killed by the disease rather than in killing his enemy. Allowing him to lead the sortie is described by Nakajima himself as mercy. But you can be the judge of that. I'll let Nakajima's own words tell the rest of the story. Quote, The field was pockmarked with bomb holes, but following my hand signals, the planes were skillfully taxied to their starting positions. As I waved in signal for takeoff, Lieutenant Nakano raised himself from the cockpit and shouted for me. Fearing that something had gone wrong, I ran to the side of his plane to learn what the trouble was, but found his face wreathed in smiles. He said to me, Thank you, Commander. Thank you very much. The simplicity of his words, the spirit of supreme dedication robbed me of speech. I wished that I could find words appropriate to the exaltation of that moment, but no words would come. So, realizing that enemy raiders might appear at any moment, I wordlessly gave the signal for takeoff. Nakano's plane started forward with a roar, and as the second plane passed me, the engine was revved down momentarily as the pilot screamed, Commander! Commander! I flagged him on with vigorous waves, but through the din came back his shrieked farewell. Thank you for choosing me! I pretended not to hear these messages as they tore at my heart. The scene repeated itself as each smiling pilot passed my position and I waved on the next. Number three, number four, number five. Each did the same as he flew off to his destiny, leaving me behind in a cloud of earthly dust. All five of these planes managed to break through the enemy interceptors and plunge into targets in Leyte Gulf. They went five for five, one exploding into a fantastic pillar of flame upon hitting the battleship New Mexico, another sinking a minesweeper, the other three each damaging a cruiser apiece. Every time I retell these stories, I just get choked up in a way that I can't quite understand. That moment when they're thanking him from their cockpits, especially when the maintenance man is jogging down the runway along with his pilot, man, I I just don't know exactly what gets me. It's just so clearly profound and selfless and brave. You can't help but see these men framed as heroic. The essence of their act is beautiful. It's so cinematic and achingly sad, but not simply because they are embarking on certain death, but sad in a pathetic way too. I hate using the word pathetic here because it feels somehow disrespectful, but I do feel a kind of pity. These kind of cute gestures seem more like those of kids, something naive and juvenile. But at the same time, I stand utterly amazed by them. I can't help but get all tingly in light of such romanticized finality, but am I more amazed at the thoroughness of their brainwashing? Or that human beings are capable of literally throwing their own lives away for a truly lost cause? Hell, this isn't even a lost cause. This isn't to win the war. This is just for pride. This is for legacy. In this case and every successful attack, it was due to extreme almost incomprehensible dedication shown from the pilots and their maintenance crews that made these attacks possible. I say that these attacks were successful, well, in hitting their target, I guess they were, but against the seemingly infinite American fleet, what does sinking one minesweeper and damaging a few other ships really accomplish? Other than fermenting endless hatred in the American public 
and demonstrating the truly awe-inspiring nature of Japanese fanaticism, what this tactic was revealing was a grim level of desperation. Of all the unthinkable actions towards an impossible goal, perhaps the most striking would be the Oka Cherry Blossom Bombs. In October 1944, at the same time that Onishi was kicking off his first special attacks, a Captain Motaru Okamura was coming to similar conclusions about their plight. In pleading with Top Brass, he was quoted saying, In our present situation, I firmly believe that there is only one way to swing the war in our favor, which is to resort to crash-dive suicide attacks with our planes. There is no other way, and I would like to command the operation. Provide me with 300 planes, and I will turn the tide of the war. Sounds kind of familiar, eh? Even after his fervent pleas, he would not get 300 planes, but instead the opportunity to launch a new weapon entirely. In top secret, Japanese designers had been developing a type of piloted flying bomb to be used in defense of the invasion of Japan. These plans were kept top secret mainly because that if any private firms involved with the production knew what they were building, well, to quote one admiral, they would think the Navy had gone mad. What they came up with was the Oka, or Cherry Blossom, a wooden, single-seat aircraft accelerated by rocket boosters packed with 18,000 kilograms of explosives, designed to be carried within range by a twin-engine bomber and guided to target by a human pilot. With a typical kamikaze carrying just five to 700 kilograms of explosives, the cherry blossom was meant to pack a serious punch. This isn't a plane repurposed, now being used to the most extreme ends. This is a purpose-built, human-piloted missile, meant to do one thing and one thing only. It may feel a small leap from what was already in play, but this truly is a tactical shift. And these things kind of look like something that the coyote would rig up to kill the roadrunner with. The suicide pilot would ride most of the way in what amounted to the mothership, usually a twin-engine bomber, then, once minutes away from target, he would climb down into the oka, which was slung from the belly of the plane. And, once he pulled the release handle, it was a one-way, rocket-propelled ride to oblivion. Being perhaps the first iteration of what has now evolved into human-guided, of course remotely, smart bombs, it's eerily appropriate that the Americans would nickname these Baka bombs, Baka being Japanese for stupid or idiot. One U.S. newspaper remarked that they were, quote, an awful stupid way to win the war, and that stuck. The men that piloted these Baka bombs were top of their class and trained for a full six months before they got their first chance to die. That's a long time. Making up your mind to die in a moment of sudden emergency or on the battlefield in the heart of combat, as we have said, well, that's one thing. Most kamikaze pilots had maybe a month or three between raising their hands as tribute and erupting into a ball of flame. And that's another thing. But six months of specific training, each day moving ahead like a roller coaster climbing towards its unknowable peak, living in that warped, muted agony of anxiety and anticipation, all the while knowing exactly what you were training for. Finally, on March 21st, Recon planes spotted three Essex-class carriers, two of which seemed already damaged from fierce kamikaze attacks of the previous days. This was exactly the target they had been waiting for. But when the Okas were scrambled for action, Okamura burst into the operations room, begging for more escorts. 
with just 55 available fighters of limited skill and experience to cover his 18 already slow Okha-laden bombers, he knew that when sighted, the Wildcats would eat them alive. He pleaded for more planes, telling the Admiral that without more escorts, they didn't have a chance of making it to target. But there were no more escorts to give. With finality in his voice, the Admiral tells him, If the Okha cannot be used in the present situation, then there shall never be another chance of using it. As bitter resignation washes over Okamura, he swallows hard and dutifully answers, Then we are ready to launch our attack, sir. Now, the certain death aspect of the Oka in concept was always obvious, but it was heartbreaking for Okamura to send his men on a mission that he believed to be hopeless, useless, having them leap to their death for nothing. The killing themselves part wasn't what tormented him, but their death should not only be heroic but worthwhile, so that their deed may be remembered forever. Overcome by this, Okamura marches down the tarmac, which is alive with the roaring engines of planes ready for takeoff. Upon reaching the lead bomber, he grabs the shoulder of squad leader Nakona, catching him before he can climb aboard. He says, I am going to lead the attack today. Shocked, forgetting his customary respect, Nakona bristles with anger. After all this, sir, you lack confidence in me? You don't believe that I am capable of completing my objective? Okamura sees the pain and dismay in Nokona's eyes. No, Nokona, it's not that, but I must lead this mission. He was now determined that he must share the fate of his men. Having built an intimate relationship as Okamura's second-in-command, it is impossible for Nokona not to see the conflicted emotions bubbling to the surface. He knows his commander does not have the heart to deprive him of this moment. Nokona says, then, this one time, sir, I refuse to obey your order. With that, Nokona tightens his hachimaki, the ubiquitous white headscarf wrapped around his flight helmet, and climbs into his bomber. But before Nokona can close it, Okamura grabs the hatch and shouts over the roaring engines, Captain, I pray for your success. As the propellers rev for takeoff, Nokona shouts back, don't worry about this sortie, sir. You can take care of the next one. At 11.35, the squadron of 18 Okas was airborne. And at 1400, they were jumped by a force of about 50 Grumman Wildcats, still more than 60 miles short of their target. By 1422, every single bomber had been blasted out of the sky. The Cherry Blossom bombers would later get better chances, even with a hundred fighter escort, but all told, they would only sink one destroyer, splitting it in half with two direct hits. Other than damaging battleship USS West Virginia and a small handful of other lesser ships and transports, all told, the Oka bombers were unable to damage, let alone sink, any U.S. capital ship. As the Americans drew closer and closer to their island, Japan was steeped in a pall of omnipresent fatalism. Every day, crowds of women would mass around department stores, train stations, and amongst the ruins, begging for others to add a stitch to their senenbari, 
After amassing 1,000 stitches on these handmade sashes, they would send it off to their loved one with the belief that it would make them lucky in battle. Luck not necessarily to bring them home safely, but rather to allow them to kill as many Americans as possible. More often than not, these thousand-stitch sashes wouldn't protect them from bullets as they'd hoped, but instead make a favorite souvenir for U.S. Marines as they slashed, hacked, bombed, and burned their way from island to island. This image of women gathering stitches, even amongst the charred rubble of their cities, was a constant fixture in the war-torn landscape of Japan. Mothers did not pray for the safe return of their sons. They prayed for them to deliver a killing blow to their enemy. One mother whose son was destined to become a suicide pilot, but died of illness before his training was completed, came to a kamikaze base and presented the squad leader locks of her son's hair to be carried with him on his final flight, thus fulfilling his wishes and imbuing the squad leader with her son's spirit. The note she included read, I pray for a direct hit. You can surely imagine a gold star mother offering a similar gesture to, say, a member of the 101st Airborne who made it home stateside on leave before returning to battle, but I find it impossible to imagine this American mother expecting and imploring him to purposefully die in the manner of the kamikaze. But we must note that the Japanese concept of death is different than that of Western culture. Their version believes that one lives in close association with the living well after death. With shrines dedicated to the deceased existing in their own homes, the constant offerings of prayers and incense, all linked to the massive network of Shinto shrines to the heroic war dead, which were spread across the nation, this paints death as something somewhat less final. The dead were a constant presence, and, as one of the living, a soldier contemplating his legacy and how they would be remembered, this attitude certainly helped to motivate what was to them a valiant and just act of self-sacrifice. Now, we're no longer a letter-writing culture. Our prose has been eroded down to about, what, 140 characters at a clip? But in the era of the Second World War, the final letter home was one of the most significant things one could leave behind. History has given us a vast supply of incredible final letters. Ones written by cavalrymen in the Civil War, kept in a pocket to be delivered to loved ones upon their death, those have their own chivalrous and poetic charm. Ones scribbled on the back of a photo and then spiked into a sandbag with a bayonet just before going over the top, as seen by the Australians at Gallipoli, these carry a sense of urgency that surrenders to a type of futility and sadness, ending with moving lines like, quote, I build castles in the air every day about our reunion. Some of the most moving I have ever read came from a group of Parisian civilians in the response to an assassination attempt by resistance fighters. Just 15 minutes before their execution, each man was given a scrap of paper and offered the chance to write their farewell. The French film Calm at Sea does a fantastic job at immortalizing this moment. One of their letters echoes the resilience in the face of an unjust and hopeless plight. Quote, this letter is my last. On this day, I die a victim of my ideals. My last thoughts are of you and I shall not tremble. Another reads, quote, Am I dreaming? Thank you for the loving life you have given me. On this day, the 22nd of October, and everyone to come, at the bells of noon, raise your face to the sun and know that I am shining down upon you. 
That one always hits me right in the soul, and it's just hard to find anyone who does romance in the face of death much better than the French. You ever forget to write your wife's anniversary card and find yourself in the restaurant bathroom scribbling down the most colorful prose you've ever put down on the page while she waits impatiently back at the table? Well, what's it like to be handed a dull golf pencil and be told to write your everlasting farewell to everyone you hold dear just minutes before they put a bullet through your heart? What words can possibly express the intensity of that moment? Clearly, I could spend an entire episode just on war letters alone, and perhaps maybe one day we'll get to that, but for our purposes, those written by the kamikazes have their own kind of unique weight. These men know, without a doubt, that they are going to die. The boys in the trenches at Gallipoli, they probably believed, and rightly so, that they were facing near-certain death, but they experienced this rush of fear and the endorphins and the emotion all in that moment. And yet there is still always that last little sliver of hope. Those doomed Frenchmen had just as short an interval, and their fate was completely certain, but yet not at all of their own making. They were victims. Although extreme, these are somehow more understandable situations. They are ones that we could picture ourselves in, ones we've maybe thought of before. But for the kamikaze, they had time to contemplate their demise in a wholly different way. I find it extraordinarily difficult to get to that place. This is a fate that they had volunteered for. And with so few survivors to tell this tale, it's only through their last letters that we may hear their echo through the halls of time. 23-year-old Flying Petty Officer First Class Iseo Matsuo opens with, quote, Dearest parents, please congratulate me. I have been given a splendid opportunity to die. I mean, right off the bat, what better embodies the ancient Bushido code of an exalted willingness to die? It immediately frames glorious death as a great quest, actively pursued with stern determination. He felt he was lucky to have such a wonderful chance to die for his emperor. A Japanese propagandist could not have written it better himself. He goes on to say, quote, we are 16 warriors manning the bombers. May our death be as sudden and clean as the shattering of crystal. Soaring into the sky of the southern seas, it is our glorious mission to die as the shields of his majesty. Cherry blossoms glisten as they open and fall. Falling cherry blossoms and shattered crystal make it into so many of these letters. It's a huge, ever-present theme in the aestheticizing of a beautiful death, as we've mentioned before. Lieutenant Nobu Ishibashi writes to his father, quote, It makes me feel so good to know that we are on the same island at this time. I think of springtime in Japan while soaring to death against my enemy. No matter how posed or scripted or impossibly perfect these final words are, the humanity manages to bleed through every time. One of my favorites comes from Ensign Tarutu Yamaguchi, his is long and excellent, and you'll find it in its entirety on the website. It's really a must-read, but this one part, I can just feel the author's aura and vulnerability glowing through. He also writes to his father, quote, An inner voice keeps saying that I must smite the foe who violates our homeland. My grave will be the sea around Okinawa, 
and I will see my mother and my grandmother again. I have neither regret nor fear about death. My greatest regret in this life is the failure to call you Chichuri, which means Reverend Father in the older Samurai dialect. I regret not having given any demonstration of the true respect with which I have always had for you. During my final plunge, though you will not hear it, you may be sure that I will be saying Chichuri to you and thinking of all you have done for me. In his words, you can taste maybe the hint of an apology or at least the desire for atonement. It reminds you that these are men with families and fathers and relationships, however broken or beautiful. They are writing to whom they are sacrificing themselves for. Cadet Jun Nomoto, born in Nagasaki Prefecture, his final letter begins written in his own hand, but it is finished by a squad mate. Dearest parents, please excuse my dictating these last words to my friend. There is no longer time for me to write to you. It is my greatest honor to have been selected for this duty. These words are being written by my friend as he rests the paper on the fuselage of my plane. There are no feelings of remorse or sadness here. My outlook is unchanged, and I will perform my duty calmly. Words cannot express my gratitude to you. It is my hope that this last act of striking a blow at the enemy will serve to repay in small measure the wonderful things you have done for me. I shall be satisfied if my final effort serves as recompense for the heritage our ancestors bequeathed. I guess you consider this the 1945 version of live tweeting, and by doing so, he captures that most pivotal moment. On the runway about to take off, I've heard multiple stories of kamikazes climbing into their cockpit only to climb back down and kiss the ground one last time, to thank it for supporting them for the last 22 or so years. The farewell letter of Ensign Ichizo Hayashi written to his mother is a bit of an odyssey. Quote, I am going to score a direct hit on an enemy ship without fail. When the war results are announced, you may be sure that one of the successes was scored by me. I am determined to keep calm and do a perfect job to the last, knowing that you will forever be watching over me and praying for my success. We live in the spirit of Jesus Christ, and we die in that spirit. This thought stays with me. It is gratifying to live in this world, but living has a spirit of futility about it now. It is time to die. I do not seek reasons for dying. My only search is for an enemy target against which to die. The letter ends with, Farewell Ichizo, but when his sortie was cancelled, he had another chance to add to this letter. And it's fascinating to feel the tonal shift in the second part. He seems more nostalgic and contemplative, somehow lighter, quoting songs he loved and talking about the smell of the clover in the hills near his home that he used to love to nap in. You have to ask, at what point was the mission cancelled? Are we witnessing the change in a man who has walked all the way down that runway and into his flying coffin, only to be called back from the brink? The second part finishes with, quote, It appears that we will make our attack tomorrow. Thus, the anniversary of my death will be April 10th. If you have a service to commemorate me, I wish you to have a happy family dinner. It is raining now, and there is an organ in our billet, and someone is playing childhood songs, including the one you loved about a mother coming to school with an umbrella for her child. Ichizo's attack was yet again delayed, 
giving him one final chance to add to his letter. Quote, Do hope that I was photogenic today, for several newsreel cameramen were here and they singled me out for a special series of pictures. He goes on to finally end with, Today we gather about the organ and sing hymns. Tomorrow I will plunge against my enemy without fail. Of all the anonymous photos taken of kamikazes as they climb into their cockpits, those stern, determined looks, maybe smoking a last cigarette or tying each other's hachimaki, even a parting smile as they taxi for takeoff. Over hours and hours of research, I have peered into the eyes of the men in these photos, wishing I could somehow understand them more fully. Have I, in fact, peered into the eyes of Ichizo Hayashi without knowing it? Would he himself even have the answers I am searching for? Oh, and apparently Ichizo Hayashi was a Christian. That's something I absolutely did not expect to find, but his words, that bit about dying in the spirit of Jesus Christ, I can't help but take that as a nod to the universality of martyrdom and how powerful a symbol that truly is. I'm sure that for the American, predominantly Christian boys manning the guns on the decks of those carriers, they saw the kamikaze as the most foreign possible creature to them. But in this case, it was a fellow Christian in their crosshairs. Religion is a funny thing that way. It's just as malleable as man is, and can be bent to fit most any goal. Throughout this story, I've described certain kamikaze attacks as successful, and in managing to hit targets and kill Americans, sometimes yes they were. Going all the way back to the first bitter losses on Guadalcanal and Peleliu, the utter refusal to surrender, the astonishing commitment to doomed orders, which in so many occasions led to brutally lopsided outcomes, showing themselves as hell-bent down to a man on taking as many Americans to the grave along with them as possible, long after defeat on the field was indisputable, this was the rising action. With this prologue, what Kamikaze was was a most terrible destination on a road chosen long ago. From a psychological standpoint, this plagued the mind, morale, and psyche of American soldiers and the American public in ways that was never seen on the European theater. To this end, in weaponizing fear, the Japanese were surely successful. But what does this fear translate to? What does making yourself so alien, so impossible to relate to or understand or empathize with, what is the result of forging such incredible fear and hate in the hearts of your enemy? At this point, so many people want to hear numbers and success rates, compare how many kamikazes launched versus how many ships were sunk or Americans killed, yet that is not the lasting effect of this third divine wind. And besides, we're not there yet. In April 1945, we're still riding a swelling wave. Can they feel it? Can the Japanese feel the water boiling around them? Can they see the looming sword of Damocles poised above their heads? No, my friends. The worst is yet to come. As I have said, nobody does death like the Japanese. Okinawa thrashes like a drowning man, now caught in the storm of steel. Tokyo blazes, reduced to a city-sized funeral pyre of 100,000 civilians. Japan is a ruined, writhing beast, 
drowning in its own blood, slashed by a thousand blades, but still with glowing fire in her eyes. And though her body is broken, her heart is still willing. If she cannot be the phoenix rising from the ashes, then she shall be a meteor crashing to magnificent oblivion. So be it. She has one arrow left to loose. No matter how futile, no matter how doomed, it is only by striking forth in search of a glorious death that she can hope to meet her ancestors with head held high and honor intact. The name of this last arrow in her quiver is Yamato. Prepare yourself for the fourth installment of this season, A Glorious Way to Die, where we will hit the high seas and climb aboard the suicide battleship Yamato as she charges headlong into the gaping mouth of hell. Now, go take a gander at wardaddypodcast.com for some supporting material as well as a long list of the amazing source material used to bring this wild story to life. And if you want to delve a little deeper, you'll find the whole Kamikaze library I've accumulated listed and linked for purchase. Also, give me a follow on Instagram. I promise to keep your news feed full of amazing images to further spark your imagination as well as War Daddy updates. Thank you very much for joining me. That's a wrap for episode three. From the War Daddy podcast, cheers till next time. <laughs>